0: Over the years, there's been all kinds of different approaches to sharing what the Bible calls good news. Some seem more effective than others, and some don't sound very much like good news at all. And the purpose of this message is not to present some kind of new mini-evangelism seminar, but to look at some examples of how the early church shared their faith in a variety of different contexts, from Jews in Jerusalem to a bunch of idol-worshiping Gentiles in Athens. The hope is that we'll find within these stories some principles that will help shape the way that we share good news all these years later. We've been going through the whole story of the Bible. We started in Genesis with God's good creation, and we are working our way through to the book of Revelation, which is kind of the the end of all things, or perhaps more rightly put, a new beginning of all things. And, uh, and so right now we're in the book of Acts. So Jesus has died and he's risen and he's returned to the Father. He's sent his Holy Spirit upon the church and he's told them that I want you guys to make disciples of all nations. That's what I want you to do. So we're, we're still in the book of Acts at the moment and, and uh, we've seen some marks that made the early church really different, some things that made the early church really different because they were an unusual body of people inside of their culture and inside of their time. There were things about them that made them stand out and made them different. We saw one of the things that was very clear was that they were a community of people that that were very inclusive in terms of their society, they discriminated against people. They would discriminate against each other on the basis of their race or their basis of their social status and so forth. And so people didn't mix together as equals. It was a highly structured kind of society. And if you're at the bottom of the heap, you just got stood on. And if you're at the top, you were the one doing the standing. And it was that's just how it was. And the early church had this capacity to embrace Jews and Gentiles that didn't like each other. They honored both male and female. They took people from every kind of socioeconomic background the slave and the free, the rich and the poor. And together they came together as the family of God where everyone was of value. This was something unique and unusual. Uh, in, in, the, in uh, the first century, and that was a real mark of the early church. We saw that their, the values that they carried were very different from the values of the world around them. They, that they, were, they were called to things like, and we heard last week Michael spoke about the value of gentleness, one of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, quoting that scripture. It says, "'The Lord is near, so you know, be gentle.'" Uh, Be gentle. It was one of the the marks of the early church, and they lived in the Greco-Roman world where people treated each other brutally, and it was to be gentle was seen to be weak. And yet Jesus modeled a different kind of leadership and a different way to be in the world, which is to be gentle and to be forgiving and to extend grace to other people. And that was, and that made the church radically different. And people could have at first mistaken it as a sign of weakness because we think, you know, you want to be strong, you've got to be aggressive. But the early church was, they were gentle with people and they were kind to people. It was mistaken perhaps by some initially as a sign of weakness, but what was soon became apparent was there was a tremendous strength and resilience lying inside of the early church that no matter how much they were opposed or persecuted, they had that inner strength and that resilience to rise again. And even in the face of persecution, the church grew tremendously. We also saw that they had a quite a different social ethic. So uh, they would look after people who were poor. They would look after people who were disadvantaged. They would look after people who were cast aside, who were outsiders, who were considered of no value. And so people would maybe put their babies out to die because they didn't want them. Or if they were disabled, they would, they would just put them out to die. And, or if they were sick, they would just more just leave. Them. We don't want to catch what you've got. We're just going to leave you to it. But the Christians had a different social ethic. They, they, they placed value on people and they put their own lives on the line to care for people who were, who were basically seen as expendable uh, by the rest of society. So so, they were, so it was quite a different kind of community. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the kind of community that they, that they built. It's, I know it's a different age and it's a different time, but there are some marks here in the early church that we need to take on board in the 21st century. And uh, sometimes we have in the church and sometimes we haven't. And it's something that we need to do. I'm talking about the church in general. So today in preparation for today's message, I I just want to add something to that. And I've been thinking about the message that the early church carried. We've seen something about the character of the early church and the way they behaved and the way they functioned as a community. I wanted to look today at a little bit about their message. So in preparation for this this week, uh, I went through the book of Acts because that's where we are. And I went through every example of where they preached the good news, where they brought the good news in the book of Acts. I mean, it's a study I've done before, but I just wanted to do it again. I thought I'm going to read through all of those examples where Peter or Paul or whoever it happened to be or Philip um, stood up and shared the good news, the gospel, shared that message. And I thought, is there anything that we can learn from the way that they did that? So this is, this is not an evangelistic seminar, but this is just a look at how they preached the gospel in the first century. And... Um, And then we can, that that will help us to consider how that impacts the way we want to share good news in the 21st century. So this is the message that they carried. So I'm going to refer to four main passages. I think we'll probably move fairly fast. There are more, but these are very representative of the others as well. So the first is, is this going to work? Yes, Acts 2. So we're starting in Acts 2. So setting is Day of Pentecost. The disciples had gathered together and... uh, Jesus said, okay, so here's the thing I want you to do. I want you to go out and I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to go everywhere. I want you to start here in Jerusalem and then head out to the Judea. And then I want you to head over to Samaria. You don't like those Samaritans very much, but I want you to go and share with them. And then I want you to go to the ends of the earth, those people that you really hate. I want you to get out there and make disciples of those nations as well. So bring down those prejudices and those attitudes that you have to others. I want you to get out there and do the job. But wait on, wait on, wait on, wait on just a few days because firstly, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and He's going to give you power to be witnesses. He's going to do something in your life that is really going to help you with this task. So they waited, wait, wait, wait 10 days and then the Holy Spirit came on them and it was quite one of those, you know, spectacular, like, like for me when I was first filled with the Holy Spirit, it was kind of like it was life-changing but it was not dramatic. It was just like, oh, I felt peaceful. I feel like, oh, I feel like, god 's here with me, but it was very peaceful and very low key they didn 't have peaceful and low key in acts two they had they had the sound like the roaring of a of a mighty wind you know it was the and, and they had tongues of fire and then they got filled with the holy Spirit and they 're all speaking in tongues, and so it 's kind of like it's sort of semi-chaotic, I suppose, in a sense. It was quite a time. And they spilled out on the streets and people are gathering around and they're hearing them declare the mighty works of God in their own languages. Now, people from all around the world, Jews from all around the world had gathered on the day of Pentecost because it was the day of Pentecost and you you gather in Jerusalem. That's what you do. So here they are turning up and they've they've all got their own languages because they come from different places around the world. And they're hearing these disciples who were uneducated people And here they are declaring the mighty works of God in all these different languages. And they're going like, man, we can understand what you're saying. What's going on? So that's the background. So Peter stands up to speak. Peter the fisherman, Peter the disciple, one of the original 12 disciples, stands up to speak. And he's speaking to a crowd of Jews. I think it's important always to note the context in which people do things. He's speaking to Jews here. So the way you speak to Gentiles might be different, but he's speaking to Jews. It's a totally Jewish congregation from different parts of the world, but Jewish nonetheless. Because remember, the Jews kind of got scattered and then got regathered, but a lot of them were still in the nations. So here we go into Acts 2. I'm not going to read all of these four accounts. I'm going to refer to them, but you can follow along by turning to Acts 2 if you've got a Bible with you or a phone or something. And uh, you can see what's there, just to check me out and make sure I'm not spinning a yarn. So he starts off in Acts 2.14, and he says, Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So there his opening words, opening words to this crowd of Jews. And so he says, firstly, he says, my fellow Jews. So he's kind of really identifying with the crowd that he's speaking to. He's saying, my fellow Jews, you know, we're all kind of, we're all in this Jewish thing together here. You know, you're my brothers and you're my sisters. We're all children of Abraham. So he's establishing a strong connection. And then he begins to answer their question, because what they were really interested in is, what on earth is going on here? What's going on? Something weird is happening And we've gathered because we want to know. We want an explanation. So he starts with the thing that they're interested in. So he creates a connection, and he uh, he begins to answer the question. But he links that back into Old Testament prophecy, which they would have known, which they respected, which they loved. And they were longing for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So he's kind of creating connections just in one statement. In all sorts of different ways. He's saying, my fellow Jews, we're all Jews here together. He's explaining what's going on, but he's linking it back into the Old Testament prophets and who they hope. So he's creating a tremendously strong connection uh, to his listeners. That's the first thing that I noticed there. Second thing that as you read on, the substance of his message, the substance of his message is about Christ. And this is one of the things that I really notice about New Testament preaching of the gospel. that, that, that we, So often we can frame the preaching of the good news around a person, but the preaching of the good news in the New Testament was very much around Jesus. He was very much the center of the story. He, he, is, he is the good news. He, he is, his coming is the good news. And so, he's, so, so, so Peter gets up and says, look, you've been waiting for this Messiah. You've been waiting for this Messiah that we have believed in as Jews. We've been waiting for this person who's going to come and change everything. He's going to restore everything for us. We've been waiting for this person. And uh, and basically, he's announcing to them, he's here, he's come. And he goes through his life. He says he was accredited to God by signs and wonders because of all the amazing things he did. That's one of the pointers that let us know that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the one that we had hoped in, this is the one that we were looking forward to. And he said he was crucified on the cross And he was raised from the dead. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And so it was very much about Jesus coming, who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection. And that was the substance of his message. That was it, really. And they basically was, well, if this is true, then what should our response be to that? And that was just, it it was kind of as simple as that. If that's true, then what should we do? And Peter gave them this response. He said in Acts 2, 38, I think it is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he was suggesting then a response to this revelation of Christ. Here's the response. If Jesus is who He says He is, if Jesus really is the Messiah, the Lord, who came and lived and died and rose again, if this is really true, then this is the response that we should have to this message. We, firstly, repent. And the word repent very much is talking about, an, it's, an inner, it's something that happens on the inside. It literally means ch- to change your mind. That's the literal translation of the word repent, to change your mind. But it refers to an inner change. But the inner change, obviously, is meant to then begin to change everything. Because if you repent on the inside, if you turn on the inside, if you change the way you're thinking, change the way you are what your priorities are, if you change things on the inside, that will then end up changing everything else. So it says, repent, change your mind, referring to a deep internal change. Then he says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So in other words, identify with Christ and become his follower, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit who's going to help you in this new journey of yours. So this he's talking about this profound shift an in internal change that changes everything else. Demonstrated by being baptized and lived out through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of a brief summary of Acts two. We're going to have an even briefer one of Acts three. And so what's happened here is a lame guy's got healed. So again, something it was it was it was pretty cool. This guy was was begging and uh, and that's how he made his living, and he couldn't walk and and, and he got healed because people prayed for him. And he was made well, and he was up and running, and people again are gathering like, whoa, what's going on here? And Peter again is speaking, and primarily to a Jewish audience, and he starts talking about the healing. That's how he begins. He starts talking about the healing, because that was the thing they were interested in. That was the thing that got their attention. So he starts off talking about the stuff that they were interested in, about the healing. And then again, he creates this connection by talking about Abraham and the prophets. And so he's creating a connection with everything that they believed in, everything that they valued, everything that they found to be true, everything that identified them as a people. And he's creating this connection with that. So they're going like, whoa, this is not just something weird and new. This is something that we have longed for and hoped for in the past. So very similar to Acts 2 in that sense. And then the substance of that message is very much about Christ, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he's the Messiah. And he adds one extra thought in, really, in this gospel preaching exercise in Acts 3. He adds this extra thought that Jesus is the one who's going to return to restore all things. He adds in that extra thought, some hope for the future. He's going to come and restore everything. doesn't explain what that means. They would have had some thoughts about that but he comes to ret- restore all things. And again, the response that he talks about in Acts 3.19 is so just the same, pretty much the same as Acts 2. Repent then and turn to God so your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come from the Lord. You know, that sounds good, times of refreshing. Who doesn't want that? And so, so often, as I began to read through all of these stories again, in Acts 2 and 3 and so on and so forth and right through the book of Acts, I started to realize that this pattern that they established pretty much replicated all the way through in all of the different stories. They might have spoken in different ways and drawn different aspects of the story out, but essentially they always began by establishing a strong connection to the listener. They then moved on to the substance of the message, which was about Christ. It was a proclamation of Christ because he is the good news And then it was encouraging people then to have an internal change and to turn to God. And so that theme follows right through. So uh, having said that, that's just stolen my punchline really right there. But I'm going to carry on. So we're going to go into Acts 10. There's a little difference here. We've got Peter again speaking. But this time, and I refer to this guy, you know, those of you who've been around, go, here he goes again. On Cornelius, you be rolling your eyes at this point. But uh, let's just have a little look in there because this is really significant because this is the first time that the gospel had gone beyond the Jewish people and, uh, and gone to a genuine Gentile because the Jews, this was eight or ten years after the day of Pentecost, and they had kept their... They had kept their religion very much within the Jewish people. Apart from Acts 8, they pressed out and did something a bit radical and went to the Samaritans. But now this is the first time that the gospel has gone to a Gentile. Now, this Cornelius was a God-fearer. And what a God-fearer meant, whenever you read the word in your New Testament that someone was a God-fearer, it meant that they believed in one God. They didn't worship idols uh, and go to the idols' temples and, and live that kind of life, and all of the wild stuff that happened in the idol temples, all of the and just crazy immorality and the things that were going on there, they, they, they weren't like that. They believed in one God, and they worshipped one God, and many of them had taken on certain Jewish customs. Uh, not all of them. They hadn't, so they hadn't converted and become Jews, but they had taken on some of the Jewish customs, and they would become monotheistic. They would believed in one God, not many, many idols. And so here is Peter going to Cornelius to speak. Now, the church's attitude towards Cornelius is that, Cornelius, you're an outsider. Cornelius, you're unclean. And even though the church has been going now for eight to 10 years, we don't think that you're worthy to receive the gospel. We would never even think to preach the gospel to you because you're unclean. And that was the church's attitude towards Cornelius after eight to ten years of operating, which to me is kind of like mind-blowing. Look, it just tells us how entrenched we can get in our attitudes that after eight or ten years, three years of walking with Jesus, ten years of being filled with the Holy Spirit and preaching the gospel, they still regarded Cornelius to be unclean and unworthy to receive the good news about Jesus. Mind-blowing. That's just me. So God has to get hold of Peter and change Peter's thinking. He has to change the way Peter thinks towards God-fearers, towards Gentiles. And and God does that through some visions and some different things that happen. We're not going to read the whole story. Um, But God changes Peter's mind about people like Cornelius. And so he turns up at the house of Cornelius, the outsider, the unclean. And the first thing he does, this seems so powerful to me, the first thing he does to Cornelius is he shows him acceptance. I just think that's just huge. He turns up and he says, first thing he does when he stands up to speak to Cornelius and his household, I now realize, like after I've been into this thing for 13 years, but I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And I'm imagining the impact on Cornelius' heart here. He's the outsider. He's the rejected. He is considered unclean. The church, and not only the Jews look at him like that, but the church looks at him like that. Cornelius, you're unclean. We don't want anything to do with you. You are not worthy. And then Peter turns up and immediately shows him Acceptance. Just imagine the impact of that, that your rejection is turned to acceptance. And that would have, I believe, had a powerful impact on Cornelius' heart. Man, I'm accepted. I'm welcomed. I'm included. I've never been seen like that before. But I'm being included in this God thing that's happening on the earth. And I'm welcome. And that's how God feels about me. And now this is how the church is feeling about me. This is so good. And the welcome mat is laid out for Cornelius. And then Peter goes on and starts to preach. Again, very much uh, the substance of his message is about Jesus. Jesus being the good news. Acts 10.36. You know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. He talked about Jesus' life. He said, oh, he went around doing good and healing everyone under the power of the devil because God was with him. He talked about his death and his resurrection. He said that he's the judge of the living and the dead. Introducing an extra element here. He's saying that this one, this Jesus, who came into the world as the Lord of all, and he went around doing good and healing people, and everyone got blessed. He died. He rose again. But there's another thing here. Just like he said earlier on, he's coming back to restore all things. On this day, he's coming back to be the judge of the living and the dead, and if you believe in him, then you will have forgiveness of sins. So again, very much focusing on the story of Jesus, and uh, in terms of the response that he gave them, well, he he, he never got a he never got a chance uh, to say any more. He never got a chance to tell him to repent. He never got a chance to tell him to do anything, because these guys are just listening to the message. And right there, just listening to the message as they're opening up their hearts to God and going like, whoa, we're, we've been accepted and, and included and we're putting our faith in Christ as they're just making that decision inside of their hearts. They just get filled with the Holy Spirit, like just bang, out of the blue, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter and his mates are looking at each other like, can you, be- can you believe that? And then they had a discussion amongst themselves, the Peter and his mates, and said, "Well, well, if, if God's done this, If God's just filled them with the Holy Spirit, just like he filled us with the Holy Spirit, then then can we stop them being baptized? We'd kind of like to. But if God's done this, he's showing us clearly that it's okay to baptize them. It's okay to really, really, really include them. And so they baptized them. And then Peter went back home and had to talk his way out of that one because the church are like, what are you doing? This is not not right. And so uh, they worked it out, which is pretty cool. So there's, there's a heap more stories I could refer to, but I just want to make one more, one more, because, this is, again, this is a little bit different. So we're jumping into Acts 17. This time it's Paul. Paul, <laughs> Paul who was primarily called to go to speak to the Gentiles. And it's kind of, it's just we talked about Paul recently. It's kind of like a really funny story because, because Paul was, if, if any Jews didn't think much about Gentiles, it was Paul but yet God called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. It was his call, and he knew it was his call. But when you read the story, once Paul gets into ministry, he just defaults back to his own kind of like natural prejudice, and he's going to the Jews everywhere he's going. He's turning up in synagogues, and he's speaking to the Jews, and he's getting really ticked off because they're not really receiving his message. And in the end, he goes, well, blow you guys. I've had enough of this. I'm going to go to the Gentiles, which is actually what he should have been doing in the first place, which just kind of amuses me. Um, so, so, so God kind of like closes the door for him to really speak that effectively to the Jews. And off he goes to the Gentiles. And here we see him in Athens, in Greece. And uh, so this is a whole different ballgame now. The, 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 in Athens, they were not um, Jews, primarily. They were not God-fearers in the sense that they believed in one true God uh, and followed some Jewish customs. But these were just out and out pagan Gentiles. And so there were all sorts of different people, all sorts of different philosophies, but it was a place that was absolutely jam-packed full of idols. And Athens was known as that was the place. You know, there was almost like more idols than people. There were just idols everywhere. And so that was the environment that Paul was going into. And, uh, And so we'll see his approach as he goes into these people who are living pretty wild lives and worshiping idols, and in many ways, almost the opposite of anything that we would think was to do with following Jesus. And so he kicks off in Acts 17. And the thing that interests me is he really follows the same kind of approach. He starts off making a connection with them. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he starts off saying, I can see that you guys are really religious. You know, you're really, you're kind of interested, at least in spiritual things. I can see that. He doesn't actually hammer them for that. He just says, I can see that you're really religious. I found an altar which said, to an unknown God. And so he kind of connects to that story. And he says, so you're worshiping what you don't know. But I'm here to explain to you some things about the nature of God himself. And so he's really connecting to them. And in his speech, he even quotes some of their own poets. So he very much is connecting to the people of Athens and finding points at which he can kind of connect the story. And then he gets into the substance of his message, Paul, speaking to these guys, it's a little bit different from speaking to Jews who already believed in one God and already believed a Messiah was going to come. So he goes back a little bit further into the story and says, I really got to start a little bit further back and explain a little bit more from the beginning, because that's where you're at. That's not what he said, but I guess that's what he must have thought. And he says, now, I want to to tell you a little bit about what God is like. He's not like an idol that needs human help. He's not like that. The God that we worship is not like an idol that needs you to look after him and needs you to build a little house for him and you to bring some offerings to him like some food or something. He's not an idol like that. But the God that we worship is the one who made everything. He made everything that there is, everything that you can see and everything that you can't see. Um, he, He made it all. He's the one who made everything. You didn't make him and set him up in a little temple, chiseling him out out of some stone or some wood or whatever. You didn't make him. But he's made everything else. And he's the one who gives life to all things. So he's explaining the nature of God. He's the one who made everything and he gives life to everything else. So he's expanding their idea, this concept of this God who gives life to everything. They don't have to They don't have to make a little idol and then go serve the little idol and look after the little idol and make a little house for the little idol. They don't have to do that. This is the God who made everything and gives life to everything and explains that. And then he tells them, and he's closer than you think. He's not too far away. In him we live and move and have our being. He's close. This God is close. And then he tells them a little bit about Jesus. And this first first encounter, he doesn't say too much, but he tells them a bit about Jesus. He tells them that he died. And he tells them that he rose again from the dead. And he tells them that he's the one who's going to judge the world with justice. He's going to judge the world with justice. So I'm just guessing that that would sound different. I think Michael might have mentioned this last week. That would sound different to different people, I think. It's just what I'm imagining. Imagining you were a slave owner. And you're really abusing your slaves. You're giving them a hard time. You're beating them. And as it was common for slave masters, you'd rape them. And just imagine if you're a slave master abusing those under your care. And then you hear the words, he's going to judge the world with justice. It's like, whoa, someone's coming to put things right. There's accountability here. There's accountability I'm just doing whatever I feel like. I'm treating people because I'm in power and I can do what I want to to whom I like. And I think I'm getting away with it. And now you're hearing a story, there's accountability. There's someone who's coming to judge the world with justice. And so there's accountability. But I would imagine that if you're the slave who's being abused and raped and given a hard time, and completely disempowered, and you hear that someone is coming to judge the world with justice, you would go, thank God, someone knows, someone cares, someone's coming to sort stuff out. Someone cares about our plight and what we're going through. Someone's coming to judge the world with justice. I think it would just sound different depending on who you were and how you were kind of, you know, your situation and how you were treating others and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, that's what he said. He's coming to judge the world with justice. Then when he starts talking about his response, (laughs) some of these things just interest me. I I wouldn't have expected him to say that. He says this. He's he's telling them the response. And again, he he uses the repent word, this inner change word. He uses this repent word. (laughs) He says this really interesting thing to them, which in modern-day evangelism, we'd probably never think to say to someone. He says, you know all that stuff that you've done in the past? they'd done a lot of stuff in the past. I mean, they really had. They'd done a lot of things that weren't, too, that, that weren't good. He says, you know all that stuff that you've done in the past? He said, don't worry about that. God's overlooked that. You know, we would tend to say, all that stuff you've done in the past, you're in trouble. You know, you know fire and brimstone is coming down from heaven. He's going to fry you up. You'd better, you know, but he actually says, don't worry about that. Your stuff you've done in the past, you can't do anything about that. So God's overlooked what you've done in ignorance. So just don't worry about that stuff. But he says, but the, now you've heard the truth about this living God who's in whom we lo, live and move and have our being, and he's closer than we think, and Jesus has come, and he's going to judge the world with justice. What, now you've heard all of this stuff. Now there's a kind of a, an accountability, I guess, to, to have a response to that. So don't worry about the past. You can't do anything about that. But now there's some accountability to respond properly. So he says this is the the thing that God is commanding now all men everywhere to repent. God's commanding all men everywhere to repent. He's saying to you guys in Athens, you need to have a change of heart. You need to have a change of heart and you need to turn to God, this God that I've been telling you about. So that's kind of Acts 17. So some of the stuff that they did in the first century church is quite different from the kind of evangelism that I've been used to in, in my Christian life and that I've heard and, uh, and been part of. And it just seems in some senses, it seems, in some senses, it seems the same, but in some senses it seems a little different. So that's why I'm chatting about it today. But here are the themes that go through, I think, every instance of gospel preaching in the New Testament. The first thing was they went out of their way to find a point of connection. It might have been a healing, it might have been a shared history. It might be hope for the future. It might be the announcement of acceptance to the outsider. It might be the quoting of pagan prophets and inscriptions on the altar to an unknown God. But in some way, they went out of their way to connect with the people that they were wanting to talk to. The second thing, the substance of the message that they brought, while it was shared with different words and drew, drew different parts of the story, the substance of their message was firmly centered around Christ, centered around Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his coming again to judge the world with justice and to restore all things. That's the substance of the message. And the response was essentially, in all of the stories that we've looked at and more beside, was essentially the same as well. Repent and turn to God. To respond to the story of Jesus requires change. If you want to respond to the Jesus story, it requires change. It requires repentance, That starts on the inside, but in the end works to the outside and changes everything else as well. It may be turning from idols to worship God. It may be turning from the pursuit of power to treating people gently. It may be turning from materialism to generosity, from following our own passions to being followers of Jesus. It could mean all sorts of things. But whatever happens is that when we make that internal decision to change, it begins to impact everything else. As I've read through the stories this week, it's hard to get away from the fact that there are some real similarities to the gospel I've been accustomed to, but there are some differences as well, sometimes just the difference in emphasis. And here are some thoughts. To me, there's more emphasis on the Jesus story. There's more emphasis. This is just in, in the evangelism I've been used to in my life, anyway. It may be different for you. There's more emphasis on it being a good news story. I think, compared to the evangelism that I've been accustomed to, it's a far kinder story. In fact, there's a verse that says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it seems a kinder story because it's always bringing good news and it's bringing acceptance and it's bringing grace. Something that really interested me also in all of these stories is that while we know when we die, we're going to be with Christ, right? So that's what we call going to heaven. So that seems quite nice, especially when you get older. But you know, you know what I mean? Everyone dies, and it's nice to think, it's nice to think, you know, you're going to be with Christ, and, uh, and that's going to be pretty cool. But what's really interesting in all of these stories in the book of Acts, from Acts Two, when they began through to the end, what was it, Acts 28, in their gospel preaching, they don't refer to going to heaven. They don't say the aim of this is so you can go to heaven. They don't even mention that. I'm not saying they didn't believe in heaven. Of course they did. But they didn't mention that in their evangelism. They weren't saying, this is the reason why you need to come to Christ. They did have an outrageous hope for the future, though, but their hope seemed to, the hope that they were preaching about seemed more centered on what was going to happen on the earth. They say Jesus is going to come back and restore all things. They're saying Jesus is going to come back and judge the world with justice. Their, their focus was, seemed to be more on what God was going to do on the earth around them. Of course, they believed in going to be with Christ when they died. That's clear. But in their preaching, they focused on what God was going to do for the world rather than we're going to be able to bail out and go to heaven. And, and also, there's no reference to going to hell from Acts 2 to the end of the book of Acts. They never say, if you don't accept this, you're going to hell. And they do bring accountability. There's no question about that. They say, there is a judgment day coming, and God's going to judge the world with justice. So they do talk about that. But there's actually, in their gospel preaching, there's actually no mention of heaven and hell. In, in the evangelism that I'm used to, that was what it was all about. And then in the first century church, it's like, wasn't even about that at all. Um, It's not that they didn't discuss those things in other places and in other ways, but it wasn't part of their gospel sharing, which I just find interesting. And then they didn't even have a sinner's prayer. I mean, you just imagine that. How can anyone get saved without a sinner's prayer? It was just like it was repent and turn to God. It was this inner change that ended up changing everything else. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a sinner's prayer. Don't get me wrong about this. I'm just saying they didn't have one. That wasn't the essence because it's easy to say a prayer, but they're looking for something more substantial than saying a prayer. I don't think they're really interested in impressing God with with a prayer. If you're expressing your heart in a prayer, that's fine, but what they're looking for is that inner change, something real that's happening on the inside, and that's what they were looking for. So some things to think about there. I'm just going to kind of pretty much leave that with you and, uh, and, and let, let you chew on that. Um, but, so this is, as we come around the communion table, this is kind of like what they said in the, in the New Testament. If we just kind of just summarize it all in a few words as we come around the communion table. They said, God's the one who created everything and he gives life to all things. That's the nature of God. And right now, right now, He's close to us, whether we realize it or not. Right now, this God who created everything and gives life to all things is close. Some of you might feel like He's close, and some of you might not. But what Paul is saying is, He's close. He's close. He's close. The Lord is near. He's close. And Jesus, the Son of God, has come into the world. And He's died on a cross. And three days later, he established his credentials as the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, by rising from the dead. And he's going to come again to judge the world with justice and to restore all things. Therefore, in the light of that, our response is to repent, to change our thinking, to have an internal shift on the inside, to become followers of the Jesus way, which ends up changing everything there is about us. We're called to repent and turn to God. And when we do that, times of refreshing will come from the Lord and nothing will ever be the same.